Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off great works of literature by forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. In this week's episode, we're excited to talk about a little-known Victorian-era novel by yet another once-wildly popular writer. The British novelist, under her pen name Weta, wrote more than 40 novels, as well as essays, short stories, and children's books. And she hobnobbed with literary notables such as Robert Browning, Oscar Wilde, and Wilkie Collins. We're going to be discussing her novel, Moths, today. Some critics called Weta's high society stories depraved, and Willa Cather dubbed her work mawkish at best. But Oscar Wilde, who, as we said, ran in the same circles, wrote that she had successfully captured the tone and the temper of her day. Meanwhile, critic and wit Max Beerbaum called her one of the miracles of modern literature. That's pretty high praise. Weta herself was quite an eccentric, even by typical Lost Ladies of Lit standards, right, Kim? Yes, I would agree. Her story is pretty fantastic or fantastical, and so is Moths. Though some call it a Victorian-era Harlequin novel, I feel like Moths is maybe more of a cross between Harlequin and Proust. I'll try and back up that bold assertion for you later in the episode. But anyway, among other interesting things, Moths tackles the topic of divorce in an unusual way for that time period. There's obviously a lot to talk about here. I can't wait. So let's raid the stacks and get started. Okay. So let's begin this episode by giving our listeners just some background info on our author, whose pen name, as we said, was Ouida. That's O-U-I-D-A. She was born Maria Louise Ramey, although she preferred the more fabulous Marie Louise de la Ramey, which is fitting when you learn more about her. And Ouida actually comes from her infant mispronunciation of her name, Louisa. Which is kind of cute, I think. Mm -hmm. I think so, too. It's adorable when you know what it actually means. Yeah. Anyway, she was born in 1839 in Suffolk, England. Her mother, Susan, was a wine merchant's daughter, and her father was from France, but he wasn't around very much. No, he wasn't. And I think maybe I saw the word elusive used to describe him. And that really works because it's thought that he may have been a secret agent for Louis Napoleon. I'm thinking here about the elusive Pimpernel from the Scarlet Pimpernel, of course. Anyway, Weta's father, Louis Ramey, mysteriously disappeared often for whatever reason. But when he was around, he taught her French, literature, history, math, and politics. What a cool dad. Yeah. Cool spy dad. Cool, mysterious, but also taught her a lot of stuff for that time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So around the age of 11, she started to create an imaginary fantasy world for herself, as children sometimes do. However, unlike most other people, she pretty much lived in that imaginary fantasy world for the rest of her life. Yeah. Um, Her father, cool spy dad, eventually disappeared for good, which is not so cool. Mm -mm. But when she was 18, Wida moved with her mother, her maternal grandmother, and her dog, Bosir, to London. And I guess the neighbors thought it was a bit unusual to live without a man in the house. And she also walked around a lot alone with this dog. She was kind of a crazy dog lady Mm -hmm. throughout her whole life. 
She was kind of thought to be overly devoted to her pets, always making sure they had the best food and even the best furniture in the room, apparently. But yeah. Yeah, plenty of people do that now. So it doesn't sound so weird. It's kind of funny how much they talked about her craziness with the dogs. It didn't really sound that bad. Anyway, Weta began publishing her short stories filled with aristocratic characters in glamorous locations. And then when she was 22, her first novel was serialized alongside Ellen Wood's East Lynn. And readers gobbled it up and demanded more. And they were also really intrigued by the eccentricity of Weta herself. I mean, 22 is really young to have your first hit novel. Mm -hmm. Speaking of eccentric, though, here's another fun fact. She tended to think every man she met was in love with her, and she would make up these wild fantasies in her head that never actually happened. It kind of reminded me a little bit of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. She has a secret internal world (laughs) that Uh she's living in. She was also described in Irish poet William Allingham's diary as having a, quote, sinister, clever face and a voice like a carving knife, which not exactly flattering, but. No, you wouldn't necessarily want to be described as such. (laughs) No. But I mean, she clearly was confident if she thought every man she met was in love with her. Yeah. It makes me laugh a little bit because it actually sounds like manifesting, but it didn't work. So I guess it's an (laughs) argument against manifesting or something. (laughs) Anyway, I know. I know. Well, you know what? It seems like she was happy anyway, and that's all that matters, right? Yeah. Um, So in 1867, I love this. She established residence at the Langham Hotel in London, and she made such an impression while she was living there that the hotel's VIP reward program today is actually named after her because she lived it up, and she pretty much always spent more than she earned every month. She allegedly lowered the curtains during the day and wrote by candlelight surrounded by purple flowers. Her monthly florist bill was astronomical. I think there's a saying, spend more on flowers than you do on food. I think she spent a lot on flowers and a lot on food. But anyway, (laughs) the Langham's website says she received her guests in bed and wrote, also in repose, on violet-colored notepaper. Maybe I'm going to try that, Amy, when I'm writing. I don't know. It does seem a bit. I know what my birthday gift is going to be for you now. Violet-colored notepaper. I love that idea. You always give the best gifts. And though she wrote prolifically, she was also throwing these incredibly lavish soirees that were attended by the writers we mentioned at the beginning, like Wilkie Collins, Oscar Wilde, Robert Browning, as well as artists, soldiers, and politicians. I can just imagine it. Can you? I can imagine it. She sounds like a complete party animal. I do think it's a little ironic, though, that she wrote all these novels and no one's heard of them. But the one thing she's known for is like the Langham Hotel being the crazy party girl. Yeah. And you can guess that probably the people who are on that VIP rewards program probably really don't have any idea about her, which is kind of funny, too. No clue. But it sounds like that hotel was kind of the literary world's version of the Riot Hyatt, which is the hotel in Hollywood that all the like hair bands in the 80s used to go party at. Yeah, it's like Riot Hyatt mixed with Chateau Marmont or something. Yes, right? Totally. Oh, I forgot to mention too, I want to add that mostly men were at this party. She had one female friend, I think, that came, but otherwise it was pretty much all men, which is interesting too. Interesting. And it seems like that wouldn't necessarily be sanctioned in society to have a single woman hanging out with all these men, but she uh, broke taboos for sure. Apparently, speaking of these salons, she also drew a lot of her story and character ideas from these gatherings that she held. 
Two of her most successful novels were Under Two Flags and Idalia. Both were penned not too long after she moved into the Langham Hotel. And Under Two Flags became her greatest success up until that point. And that's when the first of three major passions in her life began. Kim, do you want to tell us what happened with this first passion? Yes. So basically, this very handsome 61-year-old tenor, so quite a bit older than her, named Mario, came to London to perform, and Wida fell head over heels in love. At his farewell performance in Covent Gardens, she threw him a bouquet of flowers, an ivory cigar case, and a love note. Shocking. Okay, but he never responded. He left London. They never even met, but she concocted this elaborate story in her head for why he had to leave her. He became her fantasy lover, and she later wound up using him to inspire the hero of Moths, the book that we're talking about today. He was the singer Corez. Yeah, which actually nicely leads us into our discussion of Moths, which is not actually her most popular book. It was savaged by many critics at the time, but we think it deserves reconsidering, especially as it deals in a pretty unique way with some topics that were considered particularly taboo in the Victorian era, like divorce, adultery, and domestic violence. And also, it's a whole lot of fun to read. We liked this book. Yeah, I actually liked it a lot. So I'll start basically with a broad sketch of the novel's plot, and I won't spoil anything for you. The heroine of Moths is Vare Herbert. She's young, beautiful, very serious, and also very innocent. She goes to live with her widowed mother, Lady Dolly, who basically flits from one continental vacation spot to the next in this decadent society of shallow, rich women and playboys. Her mother is at best negligent, I'd say, and at worst, Well, she ends up manipulating Ver early on into marrying the worst possible guy, Prince Zoroff. He has this well-deserved reputation for being pretty depraved and cruel. Even some of the men in this world are appalled by the thought of Zoroff marrying Ver. But the prince is creepily obsessed with her innocence, and he sees her as a conquest. Vare herself would rather die than marry him, but some mitigating circumstances make her feel like she has no other choice. So she goes to the altar like a woman going to her grave. And we should point out that Vare is this naturally beautiful young woman in contrast to all the artificially beautiful women surrounding her. But having to marry this man she despises turns her into this stoic ice queen. And Wida plays up this metaphor too. She always describes Vare in terms of snow and frost. She's often wearing white. Wida says that she has grave, proud eyes that looked like Arctic stars. And the whole time I was reading this book, I kept picturing physically Vare looking like Robin Wright from The Princess Bride at her wedding to Prince Humperdinck. I don't know if you remember that scene. Yes. But um, I just pictured Robin Wright in the role of Vare because she has this stoicism to her, you know, like, I do not love this man, but I'm going to go and do it because I have to. Yes. And I'm just thinking, you know, basically she is this natural English Rose type character. And when she marries Prince Zoroff, who's from Russia, she basically becomes this cold ice queen. So it's like the proximity to him and his cruel depravity turns her into this stoic ice queen character. Yeah. Anyway, Prince Zoroff becomes irritated by his young bride's chilly disdain for him. And he does everything he can to break her will, including flaunting his adultery in her face. 
He wants to get a rise out of her, but she just has a steely resolve not to crack. She stays with him because she's too proud to be the subject of a scandal, and she obeys him out of a misplaced sense of wifely duty. They're equally determined. Meanwhile, Ver begins to develop feelings for the young and handsome opera singer Carez, which, as we said, is based on a man that Rita was crushing on. Mm-hmm. And you do have to admit, Carez is a pretty dreamy guy, right? I kind of liked him. Yeah, he's super handsome and charming. I actually fell a little bit in love with him while I was reading it. Totally. She is tempted to cheat on her horrible husband with this amazing, dreamy guy she adores. And you have this kind of will she or won't she question throughout the whole book because it totally makes sense. She's miserable in her marriage. Why not just give her heart to this kind, handsome opera singer? But Ver knows that to do so would almost be like handing her husband a win because it would reduce her to his level. And okay, so here's where I have to make my argument for the Proustian qualities of this book. And it's not just that this is a long book, okay? Um, It is a long book, right, Amy? Yes. Um, But Nabokov said about In Search of Lost Time, that the transmutation of sensation into sentiment, the ebb and tide of memory, waves of emotions such as desire, jealousy, and artistic euphoria, this is the material of this enormous and yet singularly light and translucent work. So he's talking about In Search of Lost Time by Proust. Which I've never read any Proust, so I need you to put that more into layman's terms for me. I think just the sentiments that Nabokov is talking about here, the desire, jealousy, and artistic euphoria, I think those things are also in moths, treated differently, but the the ideas are there. So I think that is where uh, the comparisons lie. There are also many differences between Wieda and Proust, um, but the treatment of the subject matter is similar. And okay, the plot of Moz sounds kind of basic and lurid, but you have to hear the prose to get a feel for what makes it so entertaining, decadent, and even, I think, wickedly hilarious. And the characters become more nuanced and complex, like Proust's do, as the novel progresses. Given that, I think it would be a good spot to read a passage from Moz for our listeners right now. I love that idea. Okay. So this is a very early passage from the book featuring the horrible mommy dearest character, Lady Dolly. She's one of the villains of the book, but at the same time, she reminds me a lot of Lady Montdor from Nancy Mitford's Love in a Cold Climate. She's just very funny. She gets Um, the funniest lines and thoughts, I think. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. So she and all her society friends are at a resort town in France enjoying the beach when a new arrival turns up wearing this ugly brown Holland dress. The horror. But as the young woman approaches, Lady Dolly's horror multiplies tenfold when she realizes it's her daughter, her long lost daughter that has been away living with another guardian for a while. As we mentioned, Lady Dolly had basically pawned her kid off on an in-law to raise after Veer's father died. So she hasn't seen her in years. And this is where the story continues. Lady Dolly gave a sharp little scream, then stood still. Her pretty face was very blank. Her rosy small mouth was parted in amaze and disgust. In that dress? She gasped when the position became clear to her and her senses returned. But the brown Holland was clinging in a wild and joyous kind of horrible, barbarous way all about her, as it seemed, and the old Scotch plaid was pressing itself against her Baptiste skirts. Oh, mother, how lovely you are, not changed in the very least. Don't you know me? 
Oh, dear, don't you know me? I'm there. Lady Dolly was a sweet-tempered woman by nature and only made fretful by maids' contretemps, debts, husbands, and other disagreeable accompaniments of life. But at this moment, she had no other sense than that of rage. She could have struck her sunshade furiously at all creation. She could have fainted, only the situation would have been rendered more ridiculous still if she had, and that consciousness sustained her. The sands and the planks and the sea and the sun all went round her in a whirl of wrath. She could hear all her lovers and friends and rivals and enemies tittering, and Princess Helene Olgaruski, who was at her shoulder, said in the pleasantest way, Is that your little daughter, dear? Why, she is quite a woman, a new beauty for Monsignor. Lady Dolly could have slain her hundreds in that moment had her sunshade but been of steel. To be made ridiculous? There is no more disastrous destiny under the sun. I mean, that's our introduction to Lady Dolly, and what a fantastic setup. You just instantly want to know more about her and hear more about this woman talking. I know. I I can't believe you had to read that over me laughing over here. Um, Hopefully you can edit that out. I'm sorry, but I'm dying. Um, There's so much melodrama in Lady Dolly. And there's a line a little bit later. Lady Dolly felt the mist over her eyes again. And this time she knew it was not the prawns. (laughs) You can see why Weta was friends with Oscar Wilde, right? I mean, she has such a sense of humor. And she's very well read. She drops a lot of quotes and references to other works in Ma's. Um, There's a lot of little notes to explain things and her scope of knowledge, it seems to be really broad and deep. And maybe a lot of that comes from her work with her dad in her early years, um, all that education. And I'll admit, maybe it could be just a bit show-offy, but is it a stretch to say it's like a moth, maybe flimsy, but with substance? I don't know, but that's also sort of describing a lot of the characters in this book who have everything, but they're also vapid and shallow. And moths in this book are, of course, a metaphor for this well-to-do society, and particularly women like the ones in Lady Dolly's crew. If Bravo TV did a real Housewives of Victorian high society, most of the women in this novel, excluding our heroine Bear, she doesn't count, but every other woman in this book would make up that cast, I think. Absolutely. I love that comparison. That is a perfect comparison. That's hilarious. Yes. If you like Victorian literature and you also have a guilty pleasure for The Real Housewives, Uh this is the book for you. Absolutely. So yeah, these women really don't do anything to contribute to society other than be fashionable and beautiful, basically, and obsess over that and hunt out their new lovers. Uh, Wida writes that this is a world full of moths. Half the moths are burning themselves in feverish frailty. The other half are corroding and consuming all they touch. It's that idea of moths are attracted to the light, the glittering, but they also eat away at clothes in your closet. You know, they're destructive. And so I know Wida is lobbying criticism at these superficial socialite women. But to me, honestly, the less virtuous characters in the book, these socialite women are much more interesting and much more fun to read about than Vare is. I kept thinking Vare was such a pill. Totally. Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank she's on, you. Yeah. I didn't know if you were going to agree with me or not because she's painted as the heroine, like the, 
protagonist that you're supposed to love. And I just kept thinking of her as this annoying, saintly martyr. She she just gets um, on my nerves after a while. She's on this high pedestal of her own appointment, you know? Yeah, it kind of makes you um, think that on some level, I think Weta, I mean, clearly she enjoyed these parties and this decadence and everything. So maybe even though there's an evil component, I guess you'd say, or a really bad component to Lady Dolly, she's interesting and fun. And I think there's something to be said for those characters and those people and the interesting life that they're living. I mean, I wanted to read more about them actually in the book. When I got to the Veer parts, I was a little bit like, oh. yeah, you're like, oh, here yeah. we go with Veer and her yeah. moralizing. Yeah. I wanted the other ladies in the book to just gather around her and sing that song from Greece, like, look yeah. at me, I'm Sandra D. They kind of were doing that. Yeah. Like, they were all kind of talking about her behind her back and rolling their eyes like, Oh, what a drip to be around. Yeah. She just needed to live and let live a little bit mm-hmm. and stop judging everybody else. Absolutely. And I think maybe um, given what we know about Wida, I wonder if she wanted us to have that feeling. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. Actually, one of my favorite characters in the book was this American heiress named Fuchsia Leach. Such a good name. Mm-hmm. It's a great name. Um, it was interesting to see Weta write an American character because she definitely mocks her as this crass title grabbing yokel, you know, Leech mm-hmm. is her last name, which makes sense. But she also perhaps has more heart and I think was the least phony of any of the other women in the book. And I thought there was something intriguing about that. I agree. And I wonder um, why Weta felt that she couldn't make they're a more likable character. Or did she think that was likable? I feel like maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, maybe it could have been the only way she felt that she could have her do what she does at the end of the book, which I don't want to ruin. But I wonder if she had to make her so noble that she would be excused for the choices she makes at the end of the book. Maybe. So, but what's most interesting to me throughout this book was Weta's commentary on marriage. She repeatedly compares marriage to slavery and prostitution. Only the prostitutes seem to have it better off than Vare. Yeah, wouldn't have wanted Vare's life. Mm -mm. Because materially speaking, she has everything. I mean, castles, literal castles, all the clothes in the world, jewels, she's dripping in diamonds, but none of it matters because she is subject to her husband's iron rule. And Zoroff basically is that horrible husband in the Julia Roberts movie, Sleeping with the Enemy. Oh my God, that that movie. I was a kid when I saw it and it made (laughs) an impression. And that's why you want her to run away with Karez, the opera singer. Yes. Why are you not doing this? Yes. Um, At one point, Zoroff tells Veer, I am your master and I can be a bad master. Chilling. Yes. And even though I had some issues with their sanctimoniousness, as we've talked about, you do have to give her credit mm-hmm. at the way she responds to this asshole throughout the whole book. She um, calmly obeys him, but she has a knack for wording her responses in such a way that infuriate him. She's playing a bit of a game in her interactions with him, and it's really kind of masterful. And that is one part of there that I loved. Yes, she does know how to push his every 
button. (laughs) And even though Moss doesn't paint the most positive portrait of marriage, to say the least, some modern critics think she actually isn't harsh enough. But I would argue that given the context of how stifling Victorian rules can be, it's kind of no wonder Weta made up these extravagant, emotionally dramatic stories. And by the way, they had overt sexuality and the readers ate them up, I think, because of that. Clearly, she was tapping into something. And I mean, it kind of seems like an appropriate response to me. What do you think? There was a lot in this book that reminded me of Mary Astell and Afra Ben from our previous episodes. This Mm -hmm. idea of like, why do women have to be forced into a marriage that's going to ruin their life, basically? But I do think readers at the time must have been absolutely floored or even outraged by Wida's savage criticism of marriage. Married women would have been the ones reading this book. Um, you know, so it's like I could almost see them taking umbrage because they made the decision to get married, you know, mm-hmm, and they're kind mm-hmm. of trapped in that life that she's judging yes. so harshly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Wida's case, I also wonder if maybe her criticism of marriage stemmed from her own disappointments in romance. Could there be a bit of resentment there? I mean, what else do we know about her personal life? You talked about the opera singer that she fell for. That was, you know, that was not reciprocated. What else happened with her? Right. So, well, um, she and her mother, after the time living in the Langham, relocated permanently to Italy, where she then lived a life of luxury while she could afford it anyway. She was always overspending. Um, At times, she had as many as 30 dogs living with her. And then she had this long-term friendship with a man who was devoted to her. But sadly, she found out he was also having an ongoing affair with someone else. This all reminded me a lot of some of the um, satellite characters in Moths. So being a writer, this was fodder for a scandalous and very recognizable Romana cleft that she wrote about this um, ongoing affair that he had. And it was during a period of depression after this experience that she wrote Moths. In spite of being trashed by many critics, booksellers couldn't keep it in stock, and a cheap version was published just four months after it had first been published. It's said that Moths influenced both Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw, which is pretty cool. But despite the book's success, apparently at one point her landlord had some peasants remove her from her villa because she wasn't paying her bills. She then fell in love with the son of the novelist, Bulwer Lytton, but he wasn't into her. She turned it into one of her imaginary lovers and kept on writing, but she was soon evicted again and actually destitute. Despite that, she wrote a novel, The Massarines, in 1897, which Max Beerbohm praised in a collection of essays, which he dedicated to Ouida. Meanwhile, Vernon Lee, she's a writer we mentioned in our episode on Amy Levy, insulted Ouida in one of her articles, and the Daily Mail printed a picture of a peasant that was said to be Ouida. She wasn't thought conventionally beautiful at all. So it was like this added insult here. Everyone was thinking of it as like this, you know, horrible looking destitute woman. That's really sad. I mean, I think I can't really blame her for creating these fantasy relationships, both in her head and on the page, given that we know this about her. You know, a fictional lover of your own creation is not going to let you down. But it seems like people either loved her or hated her and her writing, don't you think? Yes, definitely. Um, Willa Cather once described Wida as having a brilliant mind that never matured. And I think in some ways that only makes her a more entertaining writer. That's not necessarily a bad thing. 
I agree. I mean, she had her fun in a safe way that worked for her and she lived in this fantasy world. I mean, you know, good for her. She um, actually coined the term new woman in an essay in May, 1894, and she lived it. She was an unmarried woman who worked for a living, initiated relationships with men outside of marriage and made her own rules. Her heroine, Vare, has the physical strength, courage, and intelligence of a new woman, and she finds a life outside of the bonds of her marriage to Prince Zoroff. Many of the women in the book have also done the same, and as we noted at the beginning of the show, Wida includes divorce in her plot, and it's actually treated as a positive thing. So we won't get too specific about how Vare's story ends. I do think the payoff ends up being worth it, but as for Wida, she died of pneumonia in 1908 at the age of 69. But what a life. I didn't know that she coined the term new woman. I think that's cool because we mentioned that a lot in our episodes. Yep. I mean, she supported herself and her mom for more than 30 years. And she just kept churning out books because she knew what she wanted out of life. And Mm -hmm. she wanted the finest things and she wanted to have fun. Um, There were two early films based on moths in 1913 and 1917, silent films, I imagine, Mm -hmm. and a 1977 British film based on it too. I'm curious about that one because the scenic locales in this book, there are so many from, you know, they're in the south of France, they are in Swiss mountain villages, they are in the wilds of Russia, castles all over the place. Cinematically, this book would be so gorgeous to see as a film. Mm -hmm. We both had a lot of fun reading it. And I would definitely encourage listeners to pick this one up. It, it is a long book, but it's one of those fun ones to immerse yourself in. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get it, get the Broadview edition, which has a ton of additional info on Wida's life in there. So Kim, do you think you would want to read more Wida now that you've read Moths? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And here's the thing. I loved Moths um, and I loved being immersed in that world. And then to know that it's not even one of her, potentially one of her best or a lot of people's favorite. So um, I definitely would like to read more. I think the Harlequin romance comparison is wrong. I don't like that. Um, Yes, I don't agree. Is it a sexy book? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there some romance in it? Yes. But to me, it was a lot more like a British Edith Wharton novel. Yes. Or even like Dangerous Liaisons. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Um, So if you like those kinds of books, Wida is an author who would probably appeal to you. Yeah, the whole idea of it being a Harlequin novel. I mean, when I think of Harlequin, I think of like your standard plot. Every book has exact same A, B, C, you know? And it's like, for me, Moz is nothing like that. The only thing that it has in common with Harlequin is that there's some romance in it. Um, Otherwise, no. Yeah, I'm sure at the time, the word trashy might have been bandied about. With regard to it, for that society at that time. Yes, that's a good point. But today it's not, you know, today it's just an interesting, good book. Yes, but the complexity of the characters and everything, definitely, definitely more three-dimensional. Not that there's anything wrong with romance novels either, by the way. Right. The book is just dripping with diamonds and glamour and also wit and definitely some shocking social commentary too. So give our girl Wida a go, and maybe you can embark on your own inner fantasy, like she did, about living in fin de siècle Europe, right? Yeah, totally. That's a fantasy I'm always down for. 
Anyway, that's all for today's episode. Consider giving us a rating and review if you enjoyed it. Tell all your book-loving friends and check out lostladiesoflit.com for further reading material. And it's also time right now for a fan shout out. We want to say a huge thank you to Rosemary Kelty, who reached out to us recently with an awesome list of recommended lost ladies, including just a few that she let us know about. Winifred Holtby, Elizabeth Stewart Phelps, Catherine Forbes, Lily Devereaux Blake, and Hisaye Yamamoto. These are all authors who were unknown to us, and we have added them to our increasingly long list of future podcast subjects. Rosemary also wrote that she was excited to dive into Edna Ferber so big, and that she's also following my lead by attempting to tackle Clarissa, aka the book that never ends. I honestly think, Rosemary, you're going to enjoy them both, but I do suspect you'll probably finish Clarissa before I do, so... Okay, you guys can do this and it's totally worth it. And then you'll be able to say that you read it. Yes, yes. Bye, everybody. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit was produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helms.